This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Kendra Morgan. Kendra is the head curator at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, and she joined me to speak about Australia's first survey exhibition of the modernist sculptor Barbara Hepworth's work. Inspired by the landscape and human form, Barbara Hepworth was one of the leading British artists of her generation and the first woman sculptor to achieve international recognition. This landmark exhibition displays works from her early years in stone and wood right through to her later years when she uses bronze and copper. It's now showing at the Heidi Museum until March the 13th. I'm so excited to be talking with Kendra Morgan, who is head curator at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art, and she has co-curated a landmark exhibition. It's the first ever survey exhibition of Barbara Hepworth's work in Australia. It's called In Equilibrium, and Kendra co-curated it with Leslie Harding, the gallery's director. It is as I said, a landmark exhibition, and I can say that with my art history background because there is absolutely no way you would get to see all of these works in Australia. This is the first time, it's the only chance you may potentially get to see it all in one building again. And um, unless you head off to St Ives and maybe go to the Tate it really is such a rare and unique opportunity and the way it's been put together and designed is really so special. So I'm sure the Heidi Museum are very proud of what they've put together. I certainly was thoroughly impressed and also really taken by Barbara Hepworth's work. So I'm so excited that we get to speak about this trailblazing modernist sculptor and who better to speak to than Kendra Morgan, who, as I was saying off air, I haven't spoken to in probably like four years maybe. So I'm so excited to chat with you again, Kendra, and thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me on the program today, Amy. That was a beautiful introduction. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Oh, thank you. I I'm so excited. As soon as I saw that there was a Barbara Hepworth exhibition, I thought I have to talk about it. And it's probably because when I went to the NGV, when I was a baby art history student back in the day, and we were looking at the permanent collection, there was this one sculpture that really captured my imagination. And I wasn't really sure why. It's called Edos from 1947 by Barbara Hepworth. And it's this beautiful... As anyone can see from the photograph that I've posted to promote the show, it's the bottom left corner, this gorgeous circular sculpture with a yellow interior. It almost kind of looks like an egg, but not. And this beautiful sculpture just captured my imagination. And I took a photo of it at the time thinking I've got to follow this person up. And I never really understood just how significant she was until this exhibition. So I want to say a big thank you for opening my eyes up to this, but also congratulations to you and Leslie and the team for the amazing work you've done. Could you take us through what went into creating such a huge, significant event like this, an amazing exhibition? Of course, sure. Well, first of all, I guess it's always been a dream of ours, of the curatorial team at Heidi for probably over a decade to have an exhibition of the work of Barbara Hepworth. Um, Those of you who know our work at Heidi will know that we do have in the last decade or so 
um, particularly tried to emphasise in our exhibition program the work of women artists who have, which who are extraordinary, but who've perhaps been under recognised or under acknowledged, particularly during their own careers. Another case in point is Joy Hester, for example, whose mm. work we showed a couple of years ago. Anyway, we were very fortunate because our a board member, Nancy Underhill, who's done a lot of work on um, Sidney Nolan, a key figure in Heidi history, um, is friends with Sophie Boness, who's Barbara Hepworth's granddaughter, lives in London and manages the Hepworth estate. And she's really the key person that you need to know to develop any project to do with Hepworth. So Nancy made the introduction and Leslie and I travelled to the UK in 2018 to meet with Sophie and the process really unfolded from there. We knew from the beginning that we were going to be requiring some major works from the Tate, from the British Council and from the Hepworth Wakefield, which is a dedicated museum to Hepworth in her hometown in Yorkshire. She came from a tiny town well, it's not, it's not so tiny now, a small cathedral city, I should say, um, called Wakefield, where there's a beautiful museum designed by David Chipperfield, which is dedicated to her work. And they have a lot of fantastic pieces, including all her, a lot of her models and her tools and all kinds of wonderful things. Anyway, we also visited St Ives. Amy, you mentioned it, the beautiful Hepworth studio in St Ives, where she was based during the Second World War and, in fact, lived in St Ives in Cornwall for the rest of her career. And that was a very significant scenario where she was based because the Cornish landscape became so important to her. And the Tate runs that studio, um, which is called Truant Studio. If anybody, any of your listeners get the chance to go there, it's quite a remarkable experience, um, a little kind of microcosm within the, the macrocosm of St Ives where um, Hepworth used to live and work overlooking the sea. We also knew that we wanted to do some research in the Tate archives, which we did at the time because a lot of her letters are in there, and we cast the net out to Australian and New Zealand collections as well because although there aren't that many works by Hepworth in Australasia, it seemed absolutely logical to bring those together. So the whole process took has taken four years, partly with delays due to the pandemic, but also Barbara Hepworth's work is incredibly sought after. She is very well known in Europe, in the US and in Asia, and her works are always in hot demand for exhibitions. The, the pressure on the Tate and the Hepworth Wakefield is very high for loans. And in fact, there's a travelling retrospective of her work at the moment too, which coincided with the new biography. So we needed to get all our, as they say, our ducks lined up. And it took quite a long time to be able to bed down all the logistics of the exhibition. And we're very, very fortunate because we have some really major significant works that we didn't expect to necessarily have. A beautiful example is Corinthos, which is a, it's almost, oh, yeah. yeah, and that's high, weighs 500 kilograms and it's the most incredible hardwood carving, which um, has her signature piercings or, you know, the hole cut through the middle of the work in an undulating manner. Anyway, I will probably speak yeah. about individual work, so I won't go we on. Well, yeah. Well, it has mm. its own room, so it is pretty special. Mm, it is. It's quite an experience, actually, to be in the room with a work of that kind of majestic um, scale. And it, I think the beautiful exhibition designed by Studio Bright Architects really enhances the, the quite moving quality and experience you have when you're walking around the sculptures and interacting with them. Mm. And I believe they're a women-led architecture firm? They are. So Mel Bright, Melissa Bright, um, is, the, began, is the director and began the firm, and we worked with her and particularly with Pei Shi, who's one of her architects, 
on the exhibition design because we felt Barbara Hepworth did a lot of public commissions and she was very interested about the dialogue between her work and architecture and that relationship of the human scale to the work and then to the architectural or the landscape setting. We know Mel through her connection to Heidi. She's often come to Heidi and supported us in various ways and we asked her um, back in 2018 if she would be interested in doing the exhibition design and it was a really great experience working with her and her team. They've created a, um, a beautiful setting and in, in, uh, which really enhances Barbara Hepworth's um, stylistic and material diversity, her interest in different colours and textures. There's There are two, without doing a spoiler for your audience, there are two curtained rooms um, mm. which, uh, you know, give a beautiful theatrical but also textural element and quite a, you know, a kind of, in a way, a they create contemplative spaces for some of the, the works. And there's a kind of a division that there's two, those of your viewers and or listeners, I should say, who know Heidi know that our main galleries have two main spaces and then subsidiary gallery spaces on the side. And the two main spaces, one is um, has a field, if you like, of, of or a grid of smaller works in it. And then the, the back main space has the much more larger, more dramatic later works, a lot of which are done in bronze. And that contrast is also part of the experience and you, it, it gives you the ability to move around almost every single work, be able to traverse it completely in 3D. Nothing really is pushed, you know, right into the wall. And we also have a great film from 1953, which was an, a British experimental film by the film in, at British Experimental Film Institute. Dudley Shaw Ashton directed it. And it shows a lot of the works of Hepworth in the landscape and it's absolutely captivating. I agree. It's certainly one of the great parts of the exhibition to see how she worked with her tools and just how large the sculptures were compared to her size and also seeing some of the sculptures in the ocean when she put them down into the landscape. It was quite amazing to see that. It's quite surprising. The, the yeah. film is quite surreallist. You know, you suddenly, well, a good example is Idos, the work that you were inspired by, mm. and that is in the exhibition. And then you see it in the film sitting on the sand um, with the, the waves lapping around it. And she did really want her work to be seen in a landscape setting, particularly after she moved to Cornwall. She said, I want to make these forms that you can look through, look through to the landscape, that you can climb through, that are immersive, that, you know, feel like they're quite, talismanic, a lot like the Neolithic standing stones of Cornwall, which were, I'm sure you know, Amy, a really huge influence on the, on the later works in particular. Yeah, well, I did actually go to Cornwall for quite a while and I didn't go to St Ives, so I'm kicking myself now. <laughs> next time. <laughs> next time I'm going to have to go. When you talk about standing stones, it reminds me of some of the key forms that Barbara Hepworth said were very important to her. And, you know, some of them are the standalone single forms. Some are where there are two forms beside each other or intertwined with each other. And then there's the other form, which you've also mentioned, the often spherical or rounded forms that have a pierced hole or a groove in it. You know, there's this really interesting theme, I guess, that goes throughout her work where you see that there is a similar form, but they're in different ways with different materials and they seem to say different things. But certainly visually, they do seem to connect with each other. Yes. I mean, a lot of her work is about human relationships, really. You know, even though a lot of her work is abstract or abstracted, she was very much interested in the relationships, not just between, but also not between people, the relationship between ourselves and the landscape, between living things. And she said, 
and Leslie and I were very conscious of this when we were curating the exhibition to try and represent this. Um, she said that there were always three different forms that were very special to her. One is the standing form, which represents the figure in the landscape and her feelings about being a figure in the landscape. The second one was two forms. So, and, you know, they might be abstract forms like a circle, uh, you know, a sphere and a, a cylinder in, in dialogue with one another, but that represents um, the kind of gesture or relationship between people, but also between formal values, you know, colour and form and material and texture and so forth and space and light. Then the other form was what she calls the closed form, which is quite intriguing because a lot of them do have a hole or a piercing mm. through them. But really she means the, that ovoid form, which to her represented um, the embrace of living things. So perhaps the mother and child embrace or the embrace of two hills curved it towards each other in the landscape. And the exhibition does um, delve into those those forms, so we represent each of them, you know, kind of in some sort of depth. And that was important to us that we reflected, you know, her own words in, in how we curated the show and chose selected the works. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of one that I just was absolutely struck by from the Art Gallery of Western Australia. I'm sure this is a common story for you guys, but the two forms in Echelon from 1961, which are situated in front of that very tall window, which looks out to the huge trees at Heidi. It just stands there and there are these really amazing holes that go through it. This is very large bronze sculpture with two forms beside each other very like monumental, quite large, and they're elevated off the ground a lot. So you're kind of looking at them directly. But I don't know, like the interplay between the window and the sculpture and the pierced holes through it, like it's every angle that you walked around it in a round gave you something new from that sculpture. And it really kind of took my breath away. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that sculpture and her use of bronze in particular. Absolutely. Um, yes, that we knew that that would be a real showstopper, that piece, and that that was the kind of later work that she wanted to be seen in a landscape setting. So we were very fortunate that the con bronze being a very durable material, it didn't need the lighting conditions that some of the more fragile works required. So we could put it against an open window with that landscape setting. That's the beauty of Heidi in, in many ways. And it is very powerful. She moved to bronze. So Barbara Hepworth really began her career. I mean, I need to backtrack a bit yeah, and tell yeah. you a little bit about her really to put this work in context. So she was born in 1903 in Yorkshire. She had a very enlightened family when she said she wanted to study sculpture. You know, in the late 1910s, um, she was allow allowed to go to the Leeds School of Art, followed by the Royal College of Art in London. And she initially began to be, it started out as a carver. So she worked predominantly in stone. She even studied marble carving under a master marble carver in Italy for a while. And she was a proponent of what we call direct carving, which had been pioneered by artists like Brinko and Epstein, where you carve directly into the material. You don't make a model and hand it over to a master carver to carve in, in the material that you want. And that, that was highly unusual for a woman to be a direct carver because it requires a lot of strength and skill. So a lot of her early works are carved in wood and in stone, but she moved into bronze in the 1950s. So when she was a mature artist, after she'd been living in Cornwall for some time, because for, for a lot of reasons, bronze can be cast, so it can be made, you know, it's very strong it can be made on a very large scale it can you can create these really bold profiles you know if you can imagine the hard work of carving it's hard to carve really large scale works in 
in um, wood and stone. It's very taxing physically. Uh, and after the war, there was this real kind of, you know, post-war reconstruction agenda. Um, the British Council were commissioning a lot of artists to do uh, public monuments, and public monuments are usually in bronze, but also there were a lot of international exhibitions being organised, and Hepworth's star was on the rise. You know, she was becoming very well known, particularly after she was representing Britain at the Venice Biennale in 1950. So bronze um, was a way for her to not only increase the scale and the boldness of her work, but also to um, travel it because bronze is not fragile. It's, you know, very durable, as I said, and to also create these public monuments outside because she was getting commissions. So that's kind of where she started working in in, in bronze. But she also, she also didn't create many casts. Some bronzes are additioned in the high numbers, but her numbers are always very small. You know, six is quite a common number, I've noticed. And so the two forms in echelon work that you're talking about is one of these later works. And it does have, it also is influenced um, as I, I mentioned earlier, by the standing stones of the Cornish landscape, where there are a lot of, you know, on your way to Cornwall, if you're driving, you'll pass Stonehenge. And those Neolithic standing stones were very emblematic to Hepworth of the continuity of human culture and also the solidarity of, of human culture. And they had a talismanic totemic quality that she really wanted to encapsulate in her work. And Two Forms in Echelon is a beautiful example, but it also has the piercings that is, that, that's her word, the holes in the sculpture which allowed her to explore the space within the material and open up the sculpture to the play of light um, through the, these piercings and also create a sense that space or absence can be filled with meaning and also can be a material in itself. And that was a really important innovation that she is often credited to Henry Moore, piercing the mm. form, creating a hole in it. But actually Hepworth was the first... Western sculptor to pierce the form back in 1932. So it is a hallmark, these holes or piercings or absences or voids, and that play between volume and void is a real signature aspect of her work. Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that there's so many acts of recovery now about giving her back her voice, and she clearly has so many works that are still here and also all this archival matter, so many new biographies and books about her, so many exhibitions around the world. Like it's great that we get to finally get to see her work in its totality or at least to get an idea of how it's evolved over time like you've just described and um, part of the the story of Barbara Hepworth that captured me was her commitment to her work, to see this as her profession, because I think a lot of people back in the day, certainly in the early 20th century, might pigeonhole a woman doing sculpture as, you know, doing her hobby. She experienced a lot of sexism, a lot of uh, belittling of saying, you know, there's this kind of little woman with her hammer and her tools. And there are some excellent quotes from newspaper articles from around the time, really quoting the things that she came up against. She was called a sculptress, which she really disliked. She was called by the Yorkshire Evening News about one of her first exhibitions, a lovely girl with whom nobody would associate a hammer and chisel. She also, uh, the Yorkshire Post commented in 1937, if no other consideration were relevant, it would still be remarkable that a year's sculpture of such force and determination could come from a woman's hands. 
And uh, one of the others that I also was frustrated by but also amused by was The Observer when she was highly recognised at the time said, it's all the more surprising that one of the most internationally famous sculptors of our time should be a frail and reserved Yorkshire woman in her late 50s. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, can you imagine being Barbara Hepworth at the time and even into the 50s when she's established her reputation is getting that commentary? And she said in 1968, I'm constantly plagued by this little woman attitude. There is deep prejudice against women in art. The point is she was pushing up against that by just practising her art. She writes about and talks about the fact that she had to do her work every day. Like there was an internal drive for her to do that because she then felt human, like she felt she was herself when she was doing it. I guess I wanted to get your insight into that because many might be surprised to hear that she was a mother of not only triplets but also an additional child, so four children, and she was doing all of this phenomenal work, working, you know, every day on her sculptures, building a huge international reputation. What were some of those experiences that you think Barbara Hepworth might have had that her male counterparts didn't have, and I know I've kind of done the the written versions, but are there other stories and experiences that she might have had to grapple with that others did not? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I am so full of admiration for her because, and, and, and that's why I said earlier too, she had an enlightened family. You know, her family were really supportive of her career as an artist, and that was so unusual for the period. But from the beginning, she she really wanted to distinguish herself from those women, women hobbyists that you mentioned. She That's why she carved in, a lot in hardwoods, because hardwoods require a lot of strength and skill, whereas women sculptors who were considered hobbyists usually carved in softwoods. So she she started to distinguish herself from the beginning. But the triplets, yes, they were a surprise. They arrived in 1934. She'd had a first early marriage to an, another sculptor called John Skeeping, and they had a son who was just small when the triplets came along. And the triplets were with her second partner who became her husband, Ben Nicholson, who was the very well-known abstract painter. And it was really complicated because she had these three tiny babies and an older child in the 1930s and no real you know means of support and ben nicholson was actually going between her and her he had another family based in paris three other children with another artist so it was a really complicated time for her and she agonized over how to look after her family and keep everything going financially and to continue her work. And she said famously, the dictates of work are as compelling for a woman as they are for a man. And she knew that it was fundamental to her sense of well-being and her sense of identity and self-worth to continue to be an artist. So she was very lucky in that a friend of hers financially supported her to get the triplets into a nursery which looked after them um, for the first few months and Barbara visited them. But this, you know, she's been criticised for that as well, for abandoning her children at the beginning by some early commentators on her work. When if you read the letters, it was such a difficult decision from her and she was, you know, kept going to see the babies, you know, on an almost daily basis regularly. Mm. Um, But she had, you know, no other way of continuing to, you know, to continuing her art, which was so fundamentally important to her. And she, I'm full of great admiration for how she juggled it all. And then when they moved, they moved to St Ives in Cornwall because when the blitz started on London, they couldn't keep all the children. They had She and Ben Nicholson had married by this point, so they moved down to the relative safety of, safety of Cornwall 
But then she had to, you know, run a nursery school and um, grow vegetables to feed the family. They were all on rationing. You know, there were other artists down there. She didn't have a studio at the beginning, so she had to make small-scale works on the dining table at night when the kids were in bed. And she just kept going. She had this incredible drive, and she knew that her practice was just so, you know, that, as I said, fundamentally important to her. Um, so she was very plagued by all these prejudices. She and also famously said later on that she felt she got overlooked for a lot of commissions and uh, exhibitions until much later in her career because, A, she was a woman, B, she was a wife, C, she was a mother, and D, she was an abstractionist. And she was mm. probably right. So, and I love that that when you when you... Uh, I think one of the um, quotes that you gave then, Amy, came from an interview that the Australian journalist Robert Hughes did with her in 1966 when she was still, you know, these male journalists were still banging on about her being diminutive in relationship to her large-scale sculptures. And she said something like, you know, why does everyone think a sculptor is a, a muscular brute who's bashing at some inert lump of stone? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and stone, you know, stone never surrenders to force. It has to be sensitively handled. And I think mm. she gave him a lecture on, you know, what is actually like to create something. And it's not about the physical. Well, there's a an element of physical strength, of course, but it's about sensitivity. That's exactly what you see in the video when she's working with those stone sculptures. You do see just how careful her touch has to be to get it right, you know, the ways that she's working with the stone. I mean, it's it takes a lot of adept movement as well as some level of strength, coordination and care. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that she was so talented at it. I really wanted to also bring in her use of colour because that is something that's quite striking in a lot of her works and especially in this exhibition. And we talked about Idis at the start, which has the yellow that's really, you know, very striking when you look at it. But then there's also other sculptures from her earlier works. For example, Sculpture with Colour, Deep Blue and Red from 1940, which is from a private collection in the UK. Another one that's also really beautiful and kind of like an aqua green is Sculpture with Colour and Strings from 1939. And also there was another really large aqua sculpture called Spring from 1966, so a bit later on. But it also does draw in her use of string as well. So I thought maybe uh, you could tell us a little bit about Barbara Hepworth's use of colour in sculpture, but also the inclusion of string as a material. Sure. So she began to use colour and string in, when she was living in St Ives and it was she'd already been piercing the form, so creating these cavities either, you know, right through the sculpture or a, a concavity, so right into the sculpture's centre. And I should also say that she often felt that she was releasing a kind of inner form when she did this. Um, so she works, it does have a very spiritual as well as a humanist dimension. And the colour was important in that respect, but it really began when it came in from her response to the landscape. So she said that the cavities, the colour and the cavities came from her observing the depth of the water around her on the Cornish coast, the shadows of the landscape and um, the feeling of caves and the colours in the caves and the light playing through the caves. And um, the colour 
brings some of the colors are very natural like the one that you mentioned the work you mentioned spring which has this kind of dusky bronze outer shell and then that pale kind of aqua green blue interior and it's beautiful it kind of brings the whole work into equilibrium or into balance or harmony which she really was seeking and that was where the exhibition title came from but some of the colors are very intense like you mentioned another one called um, sculpture with color deep blue and red and it's a very very intense blue in fact any of your listeners who've seen Anish Kapoor's work with beautiful pigments um, will recognize that the intensity of that blue and although there there is a you know perhaps a literal element to the use of color the color brings a different from my point of view the color makes you see the work differently it it, mm. it, it, it uh, makes you in the in the example of Corinthos the huge piece carved out of the trunk of wood where the exterior of the wood is of the piece is dark the interior she paints the interior white so the color the white color in the middle makes you appreciate the subtlety of the chisel marks the the play of light across this kind of undulating cavity that runs right through the work in a very rhythmic fashion and allows light to enter it and bounce off the surfaces and bounce out so, the, and the colour, interestingly, is something that really in, did influence Australian artists because there wasn't a lot of um, exposure to Barbara Hepworth's work in Australia. In fact, the, the, the first work of hers that ever came to Australia was a coffee set in 1933, believe it or not, and it wasn't until the 1960s that some pieces began in, to be included in exhibitions. But that film that we've mentioned that's on display at Heidi at the moment was seen by a few artists such as um, Vincus Germantis from Centre 5 and Lenten Parr and they began to use colour in the cavities of their work. So that's quite an influence, interesting connection between Hepworth and Australian sculpture. But the strings, um, she said, represented the tensions that she felt between herself and aspects of the Cornish landscape. And the first stringed works were made with cotton fishermen's strings, so the fishermen's lines, you know, um, from fishing lines from the local community. But later on, she also used metal strings, and often they have a musical quality. And indeed, one of the works in the exhibition is called Orpheus in reference to the fabled um, musician and poet from classical mythology. And it looks almost like Orpheus's lyre and the strings are brought in quite a taut fashion across the work in a way that suggests a musical instrument. So there are lots of lots of different associations that come in with the strings. Yeah. One that also captured my attention was Curved Form Wave 2 from 1959, which is bronze and steel. And it does have that white or cream interior with a darkened exterior in a wave form. And then it also has the steel strings. And when you look at it from the front versus the back, you see a very different way that the strings are aligned. So when you look at it from the back, you see that it's almost perfectly aligned and they're, you know, one and a half to two centimetres between each string. But then you look at it at the front and it's not. And so you just get this really fascinating interplay of every angle offers you a new perspective on what she's saying and I guess what she's constructing, not only geographically or with geometry, but also perhaps what she's saying about the landscape. Yes, and, and another one called um, Landscape Sculpture, which is a horizontal bronze piece with a beautiful bronze patina, but also actually looks a little bit like a musical instrument, but the strings represent the um, tension that she felt between two hills in Cornwall called Uni Lalant. So there's a, yes, there's definitely a physical relationship with the landscape there. And interestingly, I was reading the other day that when she sent her bronze pieces that were stringed off to the foundry, 
the um, you know, the, the foundry, they would have to put the holes in them, but she would then get the piece back and string it herself. And if you look when you go to the exhibition, some of the strings are, it's almost like they're stitched through the bronze. So they have a, a stitched effect and, um, and then they're pulled taut, you know, across the cavity. So they're really incredibly detailed. Like the production values are absolutely amazing and it just shows you how, you know, really intensely embedded she was in, in the concept of her you know in the conception and creation of her own work and some of the stringed pieces um that echoed in a few of the drawings that we have in the exhibition done and um often actually the drawings in paint and gouache and she never translated her drawings directly into sculptural forms but she often played with ideas and the stringing ideas in 2d before she um, created them in 3d I really loved the opportunity to see some of her oil and pencil drawings around those beautiful smaller sculptures. I wanted to also bring into the conversation before we have to finish up one other and then also her public works. So the one that I was thinking of, um, which is next to two forms in Echelon on the left, is Forms in Movement, Galliard from 1956, which is copper and bronze from New Zealand. That one is also quite amazing because it's so bright, the kind of shininess of the copper, but also, again, the way that the waves and the interplay of these waves and figures, the way that they're interweaved kind of give you a new view and vision each time that you move, you know, a step to the left and a step to the right. It's so exciting, I think, to see her work because it feels so fresh like it was made yesterday. And I wondered if you had your own observations when you were putting together these works about how they felt to you as an art historian, having known how sculpture has evolved over time. Oh, I agree, Amy. I think they're timeless. And Barbara Hepworth said herself that she wanted her work, people to look at it and wonder, you know, was this created today or 2,000 years ago or maybe 20,000 years ago? And they do have that timeless quality. They kind of, um, they, they transcend tastes and fashions, but also they have a universal language. And, you know, in her early days in the 1930s when she was with Ben Nicholson and they, before the war, and they were in a very avant-garde coterie of international artists who were interested in constructivism and interested in the utopian aspects of art as a, you know, abstract art being a, an accessible universal language that was almost like a symbol of freedom against um, fascism, you know, which promoted figurative art and, and traditional academic approaches to art. So she, by choosing abstraction, she, you know, immediately kind of made her, her work timeless. And that I, I do think that you can come into the exhibition and, and feel that there's a very contemporary quality to a lot of the pieces. They don't seem to, to date or to be tied to, you know, there are aspects of it at times where you think could be tied to a particular strand in, in art mm. in, uh, in the 20th century and, you know, the other artists that she was related to. For example, you know, biomorphism and, and Jean Arp, who she was met in Paris in the 1930s they do really transcend boundaries in many ways and those fashions and tastes. And I think that's one of the reasons that people have been telling us when they see the exhibition that they find the work so moving. Yeah. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And before we finish up, I just wanted to mention that there are some great photographs, reproductions 
it's before you walk through the main doorway to the left, there's a, a kind of ramped area and on the walls there are some really large posters of photographs, historical images of a lot of her working in studios but also some of her public works. One, for example, called Single Form, which was unveiled at the United Nations Forecourt in New York in 1964. Another called Winged Figure, which was in England on the side of a building, uh, looks kind of like a brutalist building. But it also gives you an idea of just um, the range of her sculpture, given that you can't bring those sculptures into the gallery, but you give us a sense of the monumental size of her public works and the scope of her abilities. Yes, we really, that was very important to us because later in her career, when she moved to, to Metals and Bronze, she did um, also by an old dance hall across the road from her studio in St Ives so that she could make these monumental pieces. And the, the, the single form in front of the UN headquarters in New York was actually a, a memorial to Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the United Nations, who collected her work and was a friend and was um, tragically killed in a plane crash in 1961. And she saw that commission as a very important, uh, she said, the UN is our conscience, you know, their successes are our successes, their failures are our failures, and this has to be a symbol of continuity and solidarity, this, this sculpture. Mm. And the, the winged figure, which is the other one you referred to, is actually on the side of the John Lewis building in Oxford Street in London. So some of your listeners will probably have passed it without knowing or might look for it henceforth. And that was, an, um, we, we put the maquette for that work in the exhibition, you know, not being able to, of course, um, bring the, the work to Heidi, but that those very large-scale pieces were very important to her view that art is democratic, it's something that should be accessible and available to everybody and people should be able to interpret it and enjoy it in various ways that is important to them. So mm. we definitely wanted to represent that aspect of her practice. Mm. Thank you for doing that, Kendra, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today about this phenomenal exhibition of Barbara Hepworth's work, the first survey exhibition in Australia called In Equilibrium, which is open until the 13th of March. So you have time to see it once, maybe even twice or three times. It's been open as of last year, at the, towards the end of last year, and I really do hope that people take the opportunity to see all of these works in person because you cannot possibly imagine how great it is until you go into the rooms at Heidi yourself. And uh, a big thank you to you, Kendra, and your team for putting this show on and uh, send my congratulations to you all. Thanks so much, Amy. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And you. And make sure you check out the great exhibition catalogue as well. I've just been chatting with Kendra Morgan, head curator at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. You can book your tickets for that exhibition at heidi.com.au. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.